What many of us crave is safety. And we often find that in familiarity. There's comfort in rituals and traditions, the way we've always done things, the paths we've trodden many times. And so we often stick to the same routines, places and people we've known forever, because it makes us feel as if the unpredictable mad world around us is just that little bit more certain. Many people, understandably, are unwilling to dismantle all this, fearful of stepping outside the familiar into something new. But what happens if the safety we've spent our lives painstakingly constructing piece by piece begins to constrict us, limits us to new opportunities, or in the worst case, begins to feel like a kind of prison? When that happens, being resistant to change doesn't keep us safe. It confines us. I've spent a lifetime trying to be open to change, and it's scary, disorienting. But I've learned, certainly as I've got older, to listen to the whisper that says, time's up on this, Portus, move on. It's key for me to finding new paths and ways of seeing and ways of being, because it's the shifting sands of change that we find firmer footing for the future, where we discover these new paths and ways of living. None of us is static. No one is the same person with the same needs for a whole lifetime. We grow. We change physically and emotionally. And we must allow our circumstances to grow with us, test our safety zones, step outside them, carefully but purposely, if we are ever to evolve as we should. Change is, of course, daunting, but it's vital. My guest today, Tom Herbert, has certainly embraced change. And he had more to lose than many when he decided to step into it, because Tom is part of the family that has run Hobbs House Bakery for generations. Well, for over a century, in fact. And he was at the heart of that business. It was all there, ready and waiting. And yet, in 2018, Tom made the momentous decision to leave the family business and the safe and familiar structures that scaffolded his whole life. He wanted to see what would happen when he stepped outside all of that. His mantra feeding change one bite at a time. Today he runs the long table in Gloucestershire, full disclosure here. I lived near it and I've eaten there many times. And it's the kind of place that brings me alive. It's hospitable, it's kind, it's creative, it's generous. Oh, and the food is great, of course. But most of all, it creates connection and community. And the long table is driving change in the community around it. How? Because Tom had the courage to change, step into the unknown and create something new. I'm Mary Portas. This is Beautiful Misfits. Welcome, Tom Herbert. Oh, Mary, thank you. <laughs> what an intro. My pleasure. Yes, you are a misfit. Wow. Mm. Every time I go back to your long table, it just organically grows. And at the heart of it is just this love. And actually, when there is love and you are connected to purely who you are, then beautiful things happen, don't they? Yeah. If what you love is people, connection with people, and for me, I see food as a great way of bringing us together. And it wouldn't be possible on my own, of course. I've found a fantastic team to join in on that endeavour, and we do it together. And I'm so glad and grateful to enjoy the support of Anna, my wife, and um, our kids, and very much so the family that I left at Hobbs, who, like me, didn't know what I was going to do. 
Let's go back to that. You don't actually come from a family, Tom. You come from a tribe, don't right, you? Let's yeah. face it. Tell me about it. Tell me about when you're growing up. How many kids? Then describe it for oh, me. Oh, well. So I'm the eldest of six. I grew up above the bakery in Chipping Sobbery High Street. My dad and my uncles working downstairs and lots of uncles and and then in time cousins and grandparents around. So it was a family thing. My family's been baking for five generations in the Cotswolds and in Bristol as well. That was my start to have the smells and noises of the bakery wafting up. And as early as I can remember, I would sneak downstairs and try and, you know, help. Mm. jamming donuts and I've just always really loved it I've loved the work aspect of it there's something about being in a bakery with its whirring mixers and slamming oven doors and the steam and the smells it sounds like a joyous Dickensian time you know whenever Dickens shows the Christmas with Mr who was the one Fuzzywig is it yeah. it was just all joyous and warm and smells of pies and jam I mean we all sort of secretly want that don't we and you had it yeah like for me it was just normal and it's very relatable, like we're making something from scratch every day and if you do a good job, the shelves are heaving and look fantastic. And if it's a really good day, you have a big queue and the bread's all gone. And on bad days, you know, it rains and it doesn't sell and the bread has to go to the pigs. Mm. You know, it's all quite gettable. So six kids, I mean, above a shop, I have this sort of vision of you all cramped in, but I guess it wasn't. I mean, if I think of your, was it, was it bigger than the wonderful shop that you have in Nailsworth? Yeah, it's bigger, yeah. Right, you weren't all up there, like, sleeping on top of each other in bunk beds? Yeah, we had bunk beds, yeah. Yeah, of course we did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I love my bunk bed. Were you on the top or yeah, the of bottom? Of course, I was on the top. I'm the yeah, oldest. Yeah, so was yeah. I. Well, like, my sister was on the bottom. She didn't want to go up the top, oh, you right. know, but I, I loved going up yeah. the top. I guess in a big family, to have your own space. Yeah. It's quite a thing, isn't it? But like, let's talk about this baker. We're not, this is a bakery that's been in the family for 100 years, isn't mm. it? A century. Yeah. It is a brand, isn't it, Hobbs House? I mean, it's the baker's that's really recognised. It's probably the leading one in the Cotswolds, wouldn't you? Seeing probably the Southwest. I don't know. I mean, there's great bakeries around, but of course we love ours and we've been going such a long time. No, but it's we're, big, isn't it? I mean, how many? Big, yeah, like 180 staff yeah. and five shops and lots of wholesale and online and a cookery school, you know, all of those kind of things. And full disclosure here, we've known each other a while, haven't yeah. we? We'll get onto that. But you told me once that you always felt like a misfit. Why was that? Well, I guess it started at school. Well, actually, my brother George is just a year and two weeks younger than me. And my mum would dress us the same. And we'd have to tell people we weren't twins. So I guess that was the earliest thing I can remember of like, no, we're not what you think we are. And then I only really recently realised that I'm quite dyslexic. So at school, that wasn't ever like looked at or discussed. That What it was, was that everyone knew I was left-handed, even though it was encouraged to try and, you know, really try hard to mm. write right-handed. Yeah. So they put it down to that? He's, yeah, he's like maybe left... he's a bit left-handed. And so, you know, the reports back whether I should try harder and concentrate more. And and were you concentrating more? Because I, I think of you as someone who would try really hard. Yeah, I mean, I remember getting bored. Who did in school. And I just didn't excel in the academic way that the schools I went to wanted. How did that make you feel? Well, wretched at worst. Yeah, just stupid. But actually, I never believed it. That maybe sounds arrogant, but like when I was told I was stupid and for the first few years we went to a really small village private school and I remember being told, it must have been like seven, that literally, you know, you not doing well at this is like burning money and throwing five pound notes out of the window. Who told you that? A teacher. Beautiful. And I remember that being a really shocking image. Yeah. And so after that, we went to, you know, comprehensive 
and, mm. and local schools, which I enjoyed much more. And I've always found a way of really enjoying school, maybe the social things and hanging out with and having projects on the go and so on. So I've found kind of ways around that now it says mm. dyslexia. But that's how you grow, isn't it? I've often, I remember once getting in them. Um, in a cab and this cabbie driver was telling me that he passed because the knowledge normally is a couple of years to take and he passed his in 10 months I said that's so good he said I'm dyslexic I learnt ways round Mary he said how to learn things in a new way and his brain was so focused so it was wonderful he saw it as a gift in the end yeah did you ever see us out or have you come to yeah. see it at all yeah I'd say so it's really part of who I am and part of my problem with school was I could only really apply myself if I was really clear about what the point of this was. And I know that must be a really difficult thing as a teacher. It must be a nightmare. But when I know I wanted to learn something or was interested in something, then I, it would unlock a huge amount of capacity in me. I was listening to a brilliant interview the other day with Alan Yemtob and Bob Geldof. And Bob Geldof left with not one exam from school. And what an intellect. What a brain. And boy, what he's done for the world. So there was a big pull between these two parts of yourself. The boy who was part of such this wonderful, warm, loving family. It feels it was. I mean, it all feels... Wonderful, was it really wonderful? Oh, uh, yeah. Your parents got on, you were all close. Yep. What was the gap? Because mine was two year, one year, two year in my family. Were you all really close No, there's in age? a couple of big gaps. And my oh. youngest brother is 16 years younger than me. Wow. Yeah. But all, you know, from the same mum and dad, in case that was in question, because <laughs> it's such a long spread. And they love each other more than. More than us, like quite evidently, you know, their yeah, concerns each other. Yeah, that's unusual when you get that in a marriage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is unusual, and I really respect it. Like yeah. my mum would say, "Well, you can choose to do what you want when you're older," but yeah. we're doing this because it's what Dad and I want to do. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, I love that. Yeah. Love your mum. Mm. Oh, we need a bit more of that. I always get this feeling with you, and we've often talked about it, that you love community. What was your earliest memory of community? Because it's been so central to your work, and we'll get on right. to that. Big family parties. I'm the oldest also of 36 grandchildren that my mum's parents have. So there's just like a lot of people, but not not any my age. So I really looked up to my mum's younger brothers, my uncles. So the community yeah. thing is just that love of sense of occasion. It doesn't really much matter what it is you're celebrating, but lots of food brought to the table, a real good laugh. I just love it. And to the extent that I love it, I'm also horrified by loneliness. Are you? Yeah. Well, actually being on your own or lonely? Lonely. I'm very rarely on my own and it's fine if i am got something to do, <laughs> some tasks, but I just love socialising too much. And the thought of someone, like once or twice I've eaten on my own at a restaurant or something like that when I'm working away and I just, I can't bear it. And the thought that there's an epidemic of it in our country of people just on their own and not having people around. I, I it's really interesting that. because I live on my own for the first time ever. You know, I can't even, I was one of five kids and yeah. been married twice and three children. And I was like, oh, I, I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like. And I actually just love it. I mean, I'm rarely on my own. I've got my kids that come and my, my young son is there half the week and... But the days that I am, oh, I've got to really love it, Tom. You might you might grow into it. It might time you don't think so. No, I no, I look forward to Yeah. Well, I'm hoping Anna stays around with doesn't kick me out. But yeah. I can see well what's happened to my parents is that as we've left, their life has become way less chaotic and more yeah. beautiful from an aesthetic 
point of view, and we're allowed in occasionally, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's exactly how I... This house that I've got now, I say it's my house. I mean, I've got the place where I'm lucky enough to be near where you are in yeah. Stroud, and that's where the family all come, and I don't mind what boots and what crap gets thrown in there. But my house in London, it's my house, even though they're all in there. Yeah. But the, to me, I've designed it around that, and that's the first time, so I reckon your parents are getting... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. My mum's a nurse. I reckon she can't remember how chaotic it was when we were kids. Just like the mess and the no. in and out, in and out all the time and then friends on top of that. No, that's um, what we were like. And I loved it, you know. And my friends used to love coming around because they could jump around on our sofas like they weren't allowed in there at all. It was like just a shit show, my poor mother. So is there any sort of key life incidents where you... I suppose rooted your quest for change, where you kind of felt this doesn't feel right. I can get your academic understanding of that. Where else would you say that you feel you grew into Tom? Well, in my 20s, it was just about getting started and mastering my craft, which is baking. Was it a given that you, as the head of the family, of the children, mm. were going to be going into the family business. Was it a given that most of them would or what was it? Did no, you not, ever sit not, down no, over not, your... No, not at all. It was evident to me that someone needs to carry this on. Yeah. So there's a job to be done and I loved it. So it felt like a happy accident of, or, you know, yeah. it was fate, basically. Yeah. So I didn't have a problem with that at all. In fact, I embraced it and went to baking college and so on. And up until about 2008... It was a quest for perfection. Like I built a wood-fired oven in our shop in Nailsworth where you came hmm. and then had to learn about managing a team. There was 18 of us at one stage in that place. And, and was your father still in the business then? Yeah, he was in the business. Uh, yeah, very much so. But I guess I'd outgrown working in the bakery in Chibbing Sobbery hmm. and I had so many ideas that it was maybe a relief for everyone when we found a shop in Nailsworth, which is the town I live in with Anna, hmm. that we could make into a bakery. And so I had my own place to kind of put all of this energy and creativity and ideas. And I think there was a time, though, and you'll know better than me, when it started to become this this artisan bakery took off. Because I guess when your father's generations were doing it, it was bread, you know, your daily bread, weren't it? Yeah. Like, you know, and then it did become, you know, we got into sourdoughs and then we right. got into... Didn't it? What year was that? When did you feel that that was changing? Because it actually, I guess it was around the time as well where the, the chefs that became rock stars as well, yeah. that whole era. So 2000, I would yeah. just guess. And my family have always been, each generation has added its own new bit of creativity and, and brought something to the table. So even though it wasn't spoken of, there's this expectation I had of myself that I would add a chapter, like there'd be a thing that I went out to the world, figured out what was needed and came back and did that. So for my grandfather, it was like growing a milling organic wheat and employing people out of prison and train them how to be bakers so they could run their own hot bread shops. He was a real inspiration to me. For my dad and my uncles, they really turned a mom par business into more of a um, something, you know, with a stronger brand and more awareness and opened up and made olive breads well ahead of their time. We used to send them to Harrods, you know. So lots of flavoured breads and pastries and things like that. So by the time I joined, I didn't want any of that. I want to strip it right back. And uh, that's where I investigated sourdough. I'd read about it in a library and um, basically invented it for myself, like just sort of hacked it. Obviously, I wasn't the first to discover it. There were people doing it. There were some things happening in 
London that I was interested in. And like it was, was it, did it come out the San Fran? Because everyone became, was San Francisco Saturday. I remember everyone mm. chatting to me about it that time then. Well, that goes right back to kind of the gold panners. So there's a tradition of doing that. And I think it's much more recently, kind of like in the mid-noughties, that it started popping up here. And I feel like we were sussing that out for ourselves. We won just so many awards for our stuff. And for me, it was not about putting olives and things in. It was about taking it all back and pairing it with really great coffee, mm. opening a cafe, having the wood-fired oven to kind of braise meat and veg in and serve that with our with our breads. Um, and that's when I turned up. We met 12 mm. years ago and I was filming Mary Queen of Shops and you told me recently that I'd pinched your bottom. I can't believe that. Blimey, I'll be had up on this, Tom. Mary, I think we need to discuss this because... Um, <laughs> we were filming, wasn't it? What did I it do? Was, it, it was surprising and delightful. <laughs> I consider it a win. Basically, there was this strong character baker that you bought from Wimbledon, I think. Mm. And she just really went at me. And um, my she... team have watched it on YouTube recently. And they're like, oh, my goodness. It was quite fun and slightly triggering watching it again. But when she ranted at me, I was wanting to defend myself and I was new to all this and was forgetting about the cameras and I think your well-placed uh, pinch caught my attention and what you were saying sort of was like you know don't speak <laughs> let her vent this is great tv was the message I got and so we let her we let her off and off she went and um she did go mm. and then she was really interesting because I don't often talk so much about those shows but I remember I actually respected this woman, but she just could not change. That's why, you know, when I talked about in the introduction about change, how vital it is. And she was a really hardworking woman. You know, she ran that bakery. Yeah. And I actually had a huge amount of respect for her, even though she threw me eventually out of the bakers. It made me really sad because... She felt she needed to control it and be seen as the one who came up with the answers. And there was you. You'd have been a little nipper, I don't mm. know. And uh, we were showing and saying, this is how you do it. And I remember she went, what do you know? Of course, you know, the bakers mm. have been in your family for 100 years. But it did make great TV. We were up for a BAFTA on that. And then you got a show on the back. Was it right. on the back of that from what was your show called? The Fabulous Baker? Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, that started a whole sequence of events for me. I did stuff for BBC. I did actually a thing about the high street called Turn Back Time the High Street on BBC One. I co-presented it with Greg Wallace. That was a lot of fun. I learned. Dead out of it. That was a downtime. It wasn't as good as my time. No. Stop me. I don't know why out they Herbert. Nah. <laughs> That's where I learned my craft. No, it was just He's a sweet so, guy, isn't he? Well, it, we had a lot of fun. So I started being a contributor yeah. to different things and made this program called In Search of a Perfect Loaf that came out in 2009 and I just loved that. It was 20 days of filming to make a one hour program and it opened the doors for me to kind of see and go places that normal life wouldn't have afforded. I just I really was enjoyable. And then Henry, my brother, who's number five, he was on Great British Menu and he was getting mm, his own chefing mm, thing going mm. on. And someone twigged that we were related and said we've just got to make a show and that was our friend Liz Warner from Betty TV. She had spotted me years before in a glossy magazine called Cotswold Life. And she'd promised herself that one day we'd work together. Goodness knows why, <laughs> what I'd said. But I'd obviously made an impression on the inside back cover. And so then it happened. It took quite a long time. Um, I'm just looking at you. I'm thinking, why didn't they ask you instead of poor Hollywood? Maybe you don't wear those jeans that have all got white flour down the front oh, and put your hands in your pockets. And like, you know, what? Did they ever approach you? I was going to be the third judge 
And I thought I had it. And then they said they were going to go down to two judges. And I thought, oh, good. Yeah, we don't need that guy, Paul. And then when they told me a month later, oh, oh you're not I, it's not me. I was devastated. I was told, I had an agent at the time. She was great. And she said, oh, no, this is it. The BBC are never going to do anything baking related. This is too much. And so I My thought, mouth oh, that's... My mouth is literally wide open. Yeah. I, and then I went back. They entertained the idea for the next one. But the thing is, I think I was too nice. I'm not judgy enough. I was more like, oh, I see what you've done there. You can make... So anyway, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't happen, and maybe it's a good thing because then Henry and I had an absolute blast on Channel 4 making Fabulous Baker Brothers. We did three seasons of it. Do you know, I was just thinking about when you said too nice, and, I, and I've never talked about this before, but I don't do that type of telly anymore, and I've been offered many on this, and I go, I don't... Because there is a bit where when you're the presenter and you sit on so many of these reality TV shows you know they're going to edit you out okay and that someone's got to look a bit of a plonker and invariably it's the people who aren't the presenters who end up... And I, I, there was something in that that just... I remember being interviewed for The Guardian by Carol Cadwallader, who was the one who was amazing. She'd become an incredible writer and a great activist. And I turned up for this interview with her and I, I remember feeling like a real cliche because I turned up sort of quite in a glammy Mary Porter's you know red hair and an yeah. open top car and she was looking very much like a Guardian writer and I just thought she's put me into this category straight away and it was a really difficult interview really really difficult and she said to me about this she said I look at your tv shows and so many people find it funny and entertaining she said but surely do you not feel that you're abusing the people that you're going into work with? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I hadn't really ever thought it that way because I'm sure you were the same. You give so much and you really want to make their shops brilliant. But at the same time, in the edit, you know what? They can sometimes make those people look, you know, a little worse than they are. Mm. And I really, that stuck with me. Mm. Anyway, it makes great telly, but I'm, someone always slightly has to pay. Do, right, do you know what I mean? there's roles to play, and, and I guess if it's got to be entertaining, then yeah. you've got to find an angle that makes it entertaining, and sometimes, yeah, it can be you know off I mean? the mark. It's not good. Anyway, mm. that's slightly taking it elsewhere, but I would imagine you are the good guy, and we need more good guys like you, Tom. Hmm. So am I right, though, it was through television that you started expanding this sense of community. You started working with a charity, Tear Fund. Tom, yeah. Talk to me about that. And you started doing a lot of reading and learning because we all have those moments where we move on in life. Yeah. Or some people don't, but right. you did. Talk well, to me about that. I became that. really hungry for, you know, the TV got me out and about. My world grew massively. I mean, Henry and I did stuff in Southeast Asia. We made a mini series in the States. It was mm. it was just mm. a lot of fun. And, mm. and it and, is, isn't it? There's a yeah. few years you go, this is great. And, then and you go, as you're treated super well, you have people call you talent. You get kind of picked yeah. up and taken around places. It was wonderful. There was a disconnect with home, which was problematic, and my work. Like, it was hard to get back to work and think, oh, right, where did I get to, you know? How do we pick this up? Other people had to do the work when I'm not doing it, so that's tough for them. Yeah. Not, and nowhere near as much fun as it was for me. So there is a bit of a disconnect. Like, it yeah. gets a bit yeah, awkward yeah, yeah, and yeah. uneasy. And maybe even resentment comes in from others, I don't know. And Did it? Well... You felt it. I felt it because the shows didn't ever say, this is Hobbs House Bakery, here's the website if you want to go and buy it. Like, the feedback wasn't as awesome as people might imagine. It was good, but it wasn't life-changing for anyone. It was for me because I got to see the world. And in that, firstly, I found that 
we have so much more in common as humanity, basically. It's just a big thing of lots and lots of people. And what I loved was that, well, obviously we all have to eat. And often when we eat together, it's something that people just do all over the world. And it's how we socialize. And it's how we have a sense of who we are and so on. And so Tierfun approached me. I was doing a talk on creativity and making bread and using it as a metaphor and how you have to rest the dough and how we have to rest ourselves. And anyway, they came up to me afterwards. I didn't know who they were. And they introduced themselves and said that they were working with a couple of bakeries in far-flung places. Would I like to go and visit and report back? Explain what Teardrop is. Teardrop is a charity. It's an international development charity. It has a kind of Christian ethos. And it basically its power is it's super connected with the church globally so it has people on the ground which means that when a response is needed they've got access so i was less interested in kind of how it worked more that hmm so i've been offered to go somewhere that i've never been before and share what i know and report back what i learned actually completely changed my life and it was this metaphor about rather than give someone a fish to teach someone how to fish and they'll never go hungry again, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, right. So anyway, I, I like saw that come alive. I went to Laos on the Thai border and I thought I was going to do pizza and that didn't work out because no one had heard of pizza and they didn't have cheese. And we ended up doing churros because I found the ingredients needed. And for something like a $5 setup cost, you could take a little charcoal oven that they have in the markets and the ingredients to make churros as a roadside business. And there was a dozen girls, they were teenagers, some had escaped trafficking across the border and others were at risk. And I was one of a few. There was other people teaching hairdressing, motorbike repair, just skills to 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And I'd been teaching baking a long time, but this was on a different level. This was like saving people from exploitation. And once I'd had a taste of that, it made me question this thing that I love, bread and baking. I'm on an adventure with it, and that thing's called my life. My love for it has already given me so much. First, it was the awards, then it was TV, and all the while, Anna and I have grown a family through this. And and then it's like, okay, so what next? So then I think about, well, maybe I need to do milling like my granddad did, and you know, how do we strip it back even more? And what I realized was this word companion is Latin for with bread. And the people that we share bread with, you know, those that we do life with are companions, and we all need those. And I start thinking about, well, you know, the making and sharing of bread, if I use that as a metaphor, how far can I go with that? And it got me thinking, what if it could be used to change people's lives for the better? So, this grew in me to such an extent that I could no longer stay in my family business. I was due to take over as CEO. And what I realized was that it's such a beautiful old ship. I have a huge amount of love for it. And I love the people that work in it, my family included, if they're listening. I hope they're not. Um, I feel embarrassed if they are. But me, being me, this like being full up, all these things poured into me, experiences, insight, and seeing that, oh, I've got to put this somewhere. And my fear was, if I put it into this beautiful old boat, I'd break it. So there came a point where I had to just take myself out, not knowing what I was going to do. I wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for Anna backing me and saying, you know, the reason I work, obviously, is for our mortgage and to cover our bills. She stepped up and moved to full time, basically took on my job and has done a much better job of it than took I have. Took on your job in the, the hubs? Yeah. 
Right, right. Yeah. I didn't know. Um, so, I mean, I have her to thank, like, hugely, obviously, for this being possible. And then I promised her, right, three months. My family kindly made me redundant, which meant that I was able to try some things out. And uh, I thought it was going to be three months, but it took me a year. Let's go back a bit. So, hang on a minute. Did you meet Anna through the bakery? How was she able to stand up and take over? We met at school, basically. Right. Um, yeah. And while I was away working, filming, she'd answer my emails and then when we called each other each night, she'd say, oh, what shall I say about this? And So basically, inadvertently, she got trained in my job. But not baking, then? Not baking. This is like, uh, I was at the time marketing director. And then she was obviously much better at it than I was (laughs) because she's super smart. And then she went and studied marketing, which she likes well enough. But she's just... A wonderful person that allow you know it's like my heart and who I am just like swelled so much I really couldn't live with myself how I was and then as I ignored that this was sort of a three-year process say as I ignored that and repressed that that I can't do this and I can't do that I became kind of numb and hollow inside as I tried to instead shape myself for the job role that was needed It's really interesting because what you're talking about is that you started to have this calling, this, and all your life experience was taking you into, and part of that being all that you'd learned to your family business, on another path. Mm. And so many of us think, I can't do that, I'm not going to do that, because that was your heart, but Mm. your head tells you something else, Mm. which is what you were going through. Mm. And eventually you thought, no, I've got to do this. Mm. And the this was what? So it was 2018 when I did the first long table, but I actually left Hobbs in December 2016. So I had a whole year trying stuff out and I got really quite desperate. I tried setting up a cookery school at home and that just felt odd. I was really lonely being in the kitchen on my own when I'd been surrounded by family and stuff all the time. I went and baked in Calais with one of my uncles. That was blew my mind because I saw a dozen people doing 3,000 hot meals a day with donated food. We're talking about the Calais where... In the jungle. Jungle. Yeah. I mean, it's, I went in January. It was the first thing I did when I left the bakery. And I took 100 kilos of oats with me and made a shitload of flapjack. It was all sorts of things. But one of the things it was was super impressive. It was with a refugee community kitchen. But, you know, we have four teenage kids that are doing exams and things like that. So that got me thinking about, well, where could I find this energy and spirit of getting stuff done where I live. So that must have been the big change when you were out there and you saw all these refugees who were there and you're feeding them. I I read somewhere you wrote, the world is hungry for positive change and leadership built on something hopeful that already exists. I found a like-minded community of big-hearted people locally working quietly with their sleeves rolled up that I was meaningfully able to get started, the Grace Network. Yeah. There was nearly a dozen people in January 2018 when I joined, and now we are 55. So explain what the Grace Network is. So these were the guys that I met at the end of that year of just trying stuff out. There's a guy there, Will Mansell, who's now a good friend and colleague of mine. And my understanding was he ran the food bank, which he didn't. He set it up years before, and um, they just happened to share the same building. So there came this sort of crunch point when it was looming a year anniversary of me leaving and I still hadn't worked out what to do. And I was running out of options and feeling quite wretched about the whole thing. And I bottomed out like for myself. I got to the lowest point I've ever been. 
And what was that like? I'd left something that was safe and secure, our family business, and I'd been trying different things and just hadn't been able to figure it out. Sometimes it's called like dark night of the soul, a mm. kind of, there's some kind of reckoning of, have you heard of theory you? No, tell me. So that's like when you've got a sense of where you want to go to. And in order to get there, if it's a good place, you kind of have to bottom out. And like it has to get a bit worse before it gets better again. And there's things you learn there that you need for this bit because there's not like a free pass. So that helped me. What about prayer? Why do I think and look at you and you talk about, are you a Christian or would you see yourself as spiritual? Do you pray? Yeah. Do you meditate? I do pray. I'd like to feel like I should pray more because it's something I really enjoy. Do you pray I, to God? Yeah, I do. And I appreciate that it comes with baggage. But So oh, I would identify as being, a, well, I'd identify as so, being a, a Christian, but not a religious one. Like mm. there's so much about it that, well, we know all of that. We don't mm. need to go into that. But I find in it, I have a faith and that faith gives me courage to step into the unknown. Yeah, but I suppose I was going to ask you, when you're in that really dark night of the yeah. souls, which yeah. I've been in, right, <laughs> and you know there's something greater, there is that mm. whatever mm. it's we call, whether it's mm. God, whether it's soul, mm. but you know and you connect to that and you actually have this sort of calmness that comes over you. Can I tell you then Yeah. that on that day where I feel like I bottomed out, just some extraordinary thing happened that I was set to apply for three jobs that I'd found and it's like, oh, I don't... I owe it to my family. We've got mm -hmm. bills to pay and stuff. I don't want this to be horrible for them. So I'm going to apply. And I got down on my knees, which is sort of a submission of like, I failed at this thing to set something up and build something. I failed at that. And it was a bit of a crying out for like, I'm at the end of me. And God, if you're real, I must be really stupid. If you've got something for me to do, and you'd be making it obvious. It's not been obvious enough. Like, hello, please make it a bit clearer because I, I honestly don't know what to do. But the thing was, as I stood back up, I felt like the weight of responsibility of what I must do completely fallen away from me. And as I sat back down at my desk with this kind of lightness, this sort of do-do-do-do-do had opened up what was possible way wider. And when I sat back down at my desk, this little alert came up from a guy called Pete Gregg, like a notification. And he's someone's book I'd read called Dirty Glory. And there's something that Pete wrote that said that if you really want to follow Jesus, you need to go to the valley where there's people in need, not in high, comfortable places where things are zhuzhi and just, I don't know. And then that prompted me, oh, Will, that guy I met at a wedding, he runs the food bank, maybe I'll volunteer for there. I rang him and for the first time ever, I'd rung him three times in the year before and he never answered. But this time he answered and he said, oh, well, I don't work at food bank, but I'd love you to see this space we're looking at. So within 45 minutes of that prayer, I was walking into Brimscombe Mill. It took us four years to get it. And even now we're renting it and we suspect it will be taken off us again. But we went into this space and what I found was not only a, a space that was completely derelict for 20 years, it was a horrendous state, but there, there were people taking donations of clothes. My job was to sniff them for baby sick, work out, are they to be ragged or are they going to go in a box and we'll sell them online on eBay? And I just found this like extraordinary energy and a kind of up for itness that was not in anything I'd experienced before. Maybe I'd had a glimpse of it in Refugee Community Kitchen, but this was in my home, like it was in the Strau Valleys. So we, I got staff lunches going. Once a week, we'd take it in turns to cook stuff. And I was just there sorting through donations and working with kids that had come through the Police and Crime Commission. They could choose juvenile juvie 
or a work placement with us. So they didn't really want to be with us, but it was preferable. And that was interesting. And that kind of connected me with the sense that, oh, I love food. And if I could share my love, maybe these kids who had such a negative, uh, they maybe didn't think of it as negative, but like if what they know is like street stuff that's going to end them in jail or worse, maybe for some of them actually to cook and bake for our community would be something they could stand on and say, this is who I am. So as I got braver and we got to know each other, I dared to like share this dream I had of the long table. And within a couple of months of being there, we dragged some tables together. I did a feast for 80 on the barbecue that I have at home and did the washing up, took five hours. And I just had this dream that if a community could source ingredients from the farmers and growers like our grandparents used to during the war, dig for Britain, you know, grow for ourselves. Wouldn't that be good for the environment if it came more locally, building food resilience? If we then cooked it and added value to it by training youngsters in apprenticeships, these lost boys in particular, if we could give them a sense of identity and belonging and show them what good work looks like, if we could then put up a long table, because it comes from this saying, we have more than enough, build longer tables, not higher walls. I love what you do. This Brimscombe meal, I, I want to describe it. it. To me, it feels like the future of how we should be living and buying. It's just fantastic. And you've made it. You've got sort of hammocks out the front. And you can have coffee now. And I came in with my young son and he gave his little bike in and he felt great about that. And then he was playing in the corner, doing some ball game that you set up. I don't know. Then you had some great architects doing a talk about the future of how we live and how they're creating spaces that are all community based. And then you meet at this long table and you go and you've got this fabulous jolly chefs all the lot of women and lots of tattoos looking fabulous going okay here's the salad it's all freshly made gorgeous stuff that you'd expect in Ottolenghi's and then they go it's x amount for the salad say five or six quid but do you want to pay something forward so I'd go yeah 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 and then I up the price of mine so that someone who can't afford can come and sit next right. to you and you don't know who has been able to pay and you don't know who did pay but you all sit together and it's beautiful and it's it's about I sit together, we are equal. Was that right. a good summation? It's fantastic. Well, I if I didn't it. know it, I'd want to go and eat there. Yeah, <laughs> and you, well, I tell you, it's amazing. But you said to me then, oh, Mary, I'm thinking of going into the empty House of Fraser store in Sirencester. And I did, my heart fluttered and I was like, that is so a brilliant idea. How are you going to do that, Tom? Tell me, because to me, this is the future of what great retail should be. Right. We're getting close to it. We've been supported by Gloucester Diocese. So Bishop Rachel is a fantastic visionary and wonderful woman. And she just sees our work and said, how can I help? And our response is, well, we would like to do it in more places if we're invited. And so our hope is to open in Sirencester and... Gloucester. She's financing, helping finances. Right. Yeah, but it's structured as such that, so it definitely is, like, they believe that what we're doing is part of what the future needs to look like. And, a and what it would have been done by the church and what should have been done by partly by local governments is right. that there's people who cannot afford to eat. And you're going, I can do it this way. And here's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with sex, joy, fun. I don't mean sex yeah. on the table. I mean yeah. sexy, yeah, wonderful, yeah. Beautiful alive. music, alive. You did a, what was your coffee morning the other time? You do wine tastings. Yeah. It's joyous. Yeah. It's joyous. And yeah. here's the thing it's not going in some fat cat's pocket, it's going back into community. Exactly. So our aim is to create 100 jobs for the people of Sirencester, and it will be owned by Sirencester. So it's like literally for them. My job is to take some of the sourdough starter, the idea, 
this is all I've got. I don't have a business plan, but I have a you metaphor that a works. Business plan. Sourdough starter. I've helped to see them go into thousands of people's kitchens around the world and they send me photos of their loaves and tell me, you know, the stories that connect with them. And I just want to do this again, but this time with an idea. So if what we have in Brimscombe Mill is a culture, it's a charitable community benefit society, it's owned by the people there, we're going to take the ideas of that and me and some others and we're going to then set up in another place. Tom, is there anything if people are listening to this saying, hey, I want to visit the long yeah. table or can I donate? Because everything about this is good. What do they do? Right. So if you've gone to the long table website, longtableonline.com, Sign up for a newsletter. We've got crazy stuff happening, amazing people coming around us like we want to let you know first. You can pay a meal forward so that someone that can't afford it can eat at that same table. Um, so and please, you're doing a great thing for Christmas, aren't you? So it would be lovely if people can donate towards that. Yeah, we're hosting the longest table project. So I've taken our four years of experience, put it into a download of a ball pack. I know that doesn't sound sexy or exciting. We've tried to do it as well as we can so that you can host your own feast, whether that's in your home and you invite a neighbour in or whether it's with your work colleagues or whether it's as a school or church or wherever it might be. We want feasts everywhere. And then we're going to add all the people together to make, you know, virtually the largest table. And if that should generate any donations, then we would gladly receive that. And there's information online where you can sign up for this free downloadable pack. 800 people did it last year. We want to smash that out of the park this year. We reckon we've got about up to about 600, so we definitely need more. Of course you will. Or you can become a friend of the long table, but I would only advise that if you live locally. And that's just a great way of supporting us with a subscription. There'll be many more across the country. Watch this space. If anyone knows of a great property and think, well, we can help do this, get in touch. I found this. I think it was Lynn Twist, who's an incredible woman who has a site called The Soul of Money. And she wrote this, and it made me just think of you. When you commit to a vision larger than your own life, it may sound like an act of arrogance, but in actuality, it's deeply humbling. You're freed from the obsession with your own identity, comfort and satisfaction, and you become the instrument of your commitment. It shapes you into the person you need to be. It creates a clearing for your life to have meaning. It demands that you collaborate with others and become a magnet for others of vision and commitment. I think that's you, Tom Herbert. Well... I'm flattered. That's you really lovely, Mary. Thank you. Should you should be. That's really, you are really, really beautiful, Miss Finn. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks for bringing me some bread. You brought me some bread. It'd have been rude not to. Thanks for listening, and I leave you with this. Don't you dare, having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. Make it happen.